On September 8th of 2015, the first episode of Set Lusting Bruce was released. To celebrate our anniversary month, I plan to put out a new episode every day this month. During this month, I would like to share feedback from my listeners. If you have any thoughts, questions, or comments for me or any of my guests, please send me an email at setlustingbruce at gmail.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 469-249-2442. If you're not part of our Patreon group, please think about supporting the podcast by making a small monthly donation. Starting at a dollar a month, you can help me continue to spread the power and magic of music. Everyone who joins gets a personal thank you card from me and a Set Lusting Bruce sticker. Depending on your level, you can get early access to episodes and unedited videos of my discussions with guests. During this month, I'd love to get some new reviews on iTunes and other podcast players. If you haven't rated the podcast before, please go to wherever you get your podcast and leave a rating, hopefully five star, and let people know why you love the podcast. Hope you enjoy this month of episodes, and now on to the show. I always knew that I was creative, and I always knew that I was happiest when I was making things and writing things and singing melodies and like I wrote my first song probably in the second grade and I wrote 15 songs in the second grade. Okay. No one really said, Hey, this is how you write a song. I just started doing it. And at my grandparents house on my father's side, that grandfather got me like a lot of journals and would give me like spelling tests out of the newspaper and things like that. It was just understood. That's what I had to offer the world. I straightened up a little bit in my 20s and got a square job and office and got married and tried to do that for a few years. And when that fell apart, I, at the end of my 20s, I went, oh, I'm definitely an artist and I'm probably not cut out for anything else professionally. And I pursued that with full fury, so to speak. I've done that since. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. We are getting off the Bruce Springsteen train, though I'm sure he will come up. And we are getting in the belly of a whale (laughs) or a big beast. Actually, we are talking music. I have... Benjamin joining me. He is the leader of a band called The Holy Gasp. And we're going to talk a little music. We're going to talk a lot about creativity. And welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Tell us a little about yourself. My name is Benjamin Hackman, and I am the front man of a large orchestra called The Holy Gasp. We're a strange, amorphous blob of music and performance that have been around about 12 years and do all sorts of things ranging from orchestral musical theater-esque things to all-night choral performances to opportunities where we ask you personal questions about yourself and live score your life while we assist you in the process of meaning making. It's a pretty it's a pretty large grab bag of artistic endeavors that fall under the umbrella of the Holy Gasp. I'm really looking to going looking forward to going down that journey with you and hearing this the origin stories and in kind of the journey of how you got but I always like to start at the beginning. So talk to me, where did you grow up and what kind of music did your family listen to when you were younger? So I grew up in Toronto. <clears throat> I've taken a few little departures here and there and lived in other parts of the world but Mostly, I've been based in Toronto my entire life. Growing up, 
there was a lot of classical music and there was a lot of show tunes and Bugs Bunny and Marx Brothers take on classical music and opera, a lot of comedy music, like novelty comedy stuff. And like my, like when I was really little, the stuff that really spoke to me were like the songs from the Groucho Marx movies and the Marx Brothers movies. And I don't know, the music from Disney's Robin Hood. I always like songs with stories in it. Later on, I very quickly got into punk rock and that influenced a large part of the sort of angst and milieu that I'm still interested in exploring. But I listen to all sorts of stuff and I continue to look for new and interesting music. Did It's interesting because you talked about the Holy Grasp overall genre, and it does sound like a lot of that is a combination of what your family was listening to when you were younger. It is in your roots, isn't it? I don't know. To be honest, I'm the youngest of four. I don't really remember any of my siblings like really being that interested in music. I can't think of like an album that like my family gathered around. When I was really little and we had a babysitter, one of my favorite activities was to put on this album that was like the best of the 50s and I would just dance around. But this is when I was like three or four. Okay. Um, I don't know. It's hard to say where influence comes from. We pick it up everywhere. Sometimes I look back and I'm like, oh boy, I've been influenced by that my whole life and I'm only realizing that now. Sometimes I recognize like little ways of singing particular words or like an arrangement of thoughts or a particular breed of metaphor. And I think, oh, that came from this poem I read in the fifth grade, or this came from that movie I saw the last three quarters of on a Sunday afternoon on Turner Classics or something. Influence is an interesting thing. We don't, Did, we're not always conscious of it. No, I don't think we are. And so I'm curious when I'll have a writer on the show, I'll ask, have you always, were you a big reader when you were younger? And did you always want to tell stories similar to you? Did you always have a creative bent when you were younger? Always. Yeah, always. And I read voraciously. My mom and dad had a deal. I could stay up as late as I wanted if I was reading. Otherwise I had to go to bed. That's a good deal. It was a good deal. It was a good deal. I read a lot. And my grandparents on my mother's side were happy to get me as many books as I wanted. I really had this sort of endless supply. Um, and my parents were big readers too. So our basement was filled with books. It was a, a never ending library that I kept discovering and rediscovering and finding things and discovering things when I was ready. But yeah, I was always creative. My my father read that when my father read when my mom was pregnant with me that it was good for babies in utero to have classical music played for them. So he always played classical music while I was in the womb and then continued to play me classical music while I was in the crib. And I suspect that had something to do with my penchant for music because none of my three siblings are particularly musical at all. And I'm sure that it was the exposure to music in the womb that gave me a love for it. What kind of books were young Benjamin reading? I loved the Goosebumps series, R.L. Stein. He has sure. the same birthday as me. A lot of the kind of classic young adult novel series, all the sort of Nancy Drew and stuff like that. There was this series called Who is Bugs Potter about a drummer. And like his adventures, winning battles of the bands and going to summer camp and starting bands. And I thought Bugs Potter was a real cool character, especially because I was learning how to play the drum set at that time. So it was fun to read about a kid who was doing the same thing. And uh, yeah, I used to like to read a lot of like Jewish folklore as well, like Hasidic mythology and things like that. There were a lot of those stories that were written for children that would be about like these kind of supernatural 19th century small Polish town Yiddish people who were just like figuring out the world with golems mm -hmm. and books and I thought that stuff was pretty exciting so I guess I had a bit of a bent towards the horror yeah do 
do you can you remember the first thing you did creatively? Whether it was a story, a song? I can remember two things. I have a cousin who's a potter, and my grandmother took me down to her studio. I was very young, and she gave me a hunk of clay and taught me how to make a pinch pot. And I sat the entire day mesmerized with this clay making pots. And the other thing I can think of is in kindergarten, we had Orf music classes where they teach the kids like the box xylophones and glockenspiels and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was obsessed with the glockenspiel so much so that the teacher took my mother aside at the end of the year and said, your son's really into this glockenspiel. You might want to consider letting him play music. But we had a lot of instruments in the house. No one played them, but my dad just collected them over the years. He was a lot older than me when I was born. So I just came into this house with a lot of instruments. So there was pianos and guitars and accordions. And I was the only one who seemed particularly interested, but I just played with them, explored them. They were there. Having that exposure at an early age, I'm sure made a really significant difference. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. He's Lucas Hare. He's Carrie Shale. And this is a trailer for Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan. We talk to interesting people like author Neil Gaiman. Dylan is always more omnipresent than you believe. Part three of American Gods is called This Moment of the Storm. And of course, it's a hard rain's gonna fall is, is another way of saying that. Singer Billy Bragg. I went to this Hammersmithodian with Chrissy Hind and she totally spoiled the whole evening for me by going backstage beforehand and coming and saying to me, you must come back and say hello to Bob afterwards. He'd love to meet you. So I spent the entire gig thinking to myself, what am I going to say to Bob Dylan that, is, that doesn't sound like, hello, Bob, I really like your records? So I ran away. At the end. Actor David Morrissey. Their stories, they are all, you know, you sit there and you think, God, this is taking me on a journey, not just by uh, each track, but each album is mm. such a chapter in a life. Singer Barb Younger. And suddenly something in the song, you go, bing, you go, oh, yeah, that's today. That's the reality of the quality of his understanding 
of humanity, mm. that kind of, that really relentless gaze. The legendary Larry Ratso Sloman. And that's when I talked to him about Sad Eyed Lady. And I said, you know, Bob, I always wondered, you know, in the chorus you say, my warehouse eyes, my Arabian drums. Do you mean eyes as a verb? Or is there a comma there? Is it two different images? And Sarah goes, yeah, I've always wondered that too. And Bob, and Bob says, leave me alone, Ratso. Writer David Hepworth. Honestly, sweat was dripping off me because I was not getting very far. And you always think, I've got to get some quotes. I've got to get some lines or something. And, you, of course, you can't get that out of Bob Dylan. It doesn't work like that. Mm. And the woman from the record company said to him, how's it going, Bob? And he says, I don't know. He keeps asking me questions. <laughs> and Dylan Authority. Michael Gray. What he's doing there, Dylan, is he's, he's breaking through the sort of oleaginous smear of coast-to-coast important American television. And he's creating, he's busting through that and creating a live event, an authentic moment. Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. His voice is really warm. It's just that it ain't got no form. But it's just like a dead man's last pistol shot, baby. Did you know you always wanted to do something creative for a career? I understand the question you're asking me, but I think about it slightly different. That's I, good. I, always, I love I, that I, different. Yeah. Difference is good. Yes, yes. I always knew that I was creative and I always knew that I was happiest when I was making things and writing things and singing melodies and like I wrote my first song probably in the second grade and I wrote 15 songs in the second grade. Okay. No one really said, hey, this is how you write a song. I just started doing it. And at my grandparents' house on my father's side, that grandfather got me like a lot of journals and would give me like spelling tests out of the newspaper and things like that. It was just understood that's what I had to offer the world. I straightened up a little bit in my 20s and got a square job in an office and got married and tried to do that for a few years. And when that fell apart, I, at the end of my 20s, I went, oh, I'm definitely an artist and I'm probably not cut out for anything else professionally. And I pursued that with full fury, so to speak. I've done that since. So did I have a good friend, Tom, who... From the moment he picked up a crayon, he knew that being an artist is all he ever wanted. That was his passion. He went to Joe Kubert's School of Art Comics. He did work as a commercial artist for a while, but basically that's all he ever did. There was no back, there was no backup plan whatsoever with him. He just wanted. Were you more, hey, this is what I do for fun, but I need to find a day gig or a little in between? No, I just let myself be poor. Okay. I never thought at all about it. I never thought about that stuff. I probably should have. And Lord knows my parents were always like, you should consider that stuff. But I've always been something of an anarchist. If I couldn't afford to live, I would just pack up and move to a farm and do a kind of work trade for room and board and have time to write poems and write songs while I was picking thistle and feeding the sheep. And Mm -hmm. and I did that a bunch. I went coast to coast in Canada. I farmed all over the country. And the thing is, if you, everything's a trade-off, right? You can go for money or you can go for time, but it's pretty hard to get both. I think people early on often choose money over time. But if you want to make art, of course you need the time. And it's not so bad being poor. Listen, let's be real. I'm not talking about poverty in third world developing countries. It's a whole different beast. Yeah. But um, if I can make my rent and I can make my groceries and buy clothes once or twice a year and take my girlfriend out, that's enough. And I hope one day to have something more than that, but I'm not aspiring for riches. So with that attitude, it enables me to, it enables me to make art a full-time vocation. So in the late 80s, I had met a wonderful singer-songwriter named Sarah Hickman, and she had a day gig working like at a museum, and she decided that she needed to put 
all her energy into her art. And I remember once it was the spring, so the weather wasn't incredibly hot, but her electricity was out for three days because she didn't have the money to pay the electricity. And, uh, and then when she got money from a gig, she turned her power back on. And I said, that would be it. That would be it. The first obstacle. Nope. Got to get a day gig. And she was, no, this is, and not and the idea of paying a price to be a artist, but just the idea, yeah, this may happen, but I have a goal. I have a focus and this is what I need to do. And I think that's to be admired because not everyone will be able to want to do that kind of journey. What are your thoughts on that? I think your summation at the end of what you said is quite apt. Not everybody is cut out for that sort of lifestyle. And that's a good thing to learn about yourself early on. It's very stressful to worry about, especially in the winter. I live in Toronto. We have proper winters. Sure. But I don't know, I get more and more used to it every year. And and also, I make more and more money off of my art every year. And in Canada, we're very lucky. We have a, a very robust series of arts councils. And where I live, I have access to a municipal arts council, a provincial arts council, and federal arts funding. So on years where funding is good, I can live an all right life. And I make quite large-scale ambitious projects than the most recent Holy Gasp album, The Lord Has Taken Away, was a 45-person orchestral piece. It takes a lot of arts funding to create things like that. From that, I can pay myself a small pittance to get by. But yeah, what can I say? I'm okay with it. So, Benjamin, let's go through some of your musical journeys, because what did you do? What kind of musical things did you do bands and other projects before you started the holy gasp like high school bands okay yeah i had a band all throughout grade school and junior high and i had a band all throughout high school so i was pretty monogamous with my bands and and then i don't know when i was like when I was about 19 or 20, I moved to Israel for a year. And when I came back, that band broke up. And uh, then I wrote poetry. And that was all I did. And I did that until I did that until about 2010, where I had too much of society and moved to an island and traveled across Canada. I was gone for almost two years. And when I came back, I fell in love with a pair of congas and this would have been 2010, 2011. And I financed them for about 18 months. <laughs> paying okay. like a, little, a little bit, something like, I don't know, 20 or $30 a month until I paid them off. And then I composed a whole record. The first Holy Gas record, the self-titled record is just me and a pair of congas just singing and drumming. I've buried that album and it's no longer available publicly. But that's what I did. And very quickly, my music career was better received than my literary career. Plus, it was fun to work with other people. Because after that initial self-titled record, I started adding people to the mix. And I've just added more and more people to the mix. And I learned something about myself, which is I really like people. And I really like making art with them. So I was going to ask that. you To you, music is a communal thing versus a solitary thing? It's a healthy mix of both, actually. My favorite thing is to write, to write the melodies and the music, to write the lyrics. That's that is me at my at my truest. And then the the recording of the the music and the performance of the music, that's that's really fun. But that's like my play. Okay. I, wouldn't call that, I wouldn't call that my art. I'd call it my play. That's what I do for fun and joy. Whereas the art is what I do for for purpose and obsession. So talk about the origin stories of the band, the orchestra. Starts as a, it starts with me and my congas. And then I add 
five other individuals to the mix and we do our first record the last generation of love which is this kind of jazz punk bossa nova hybrid thing okay from there we go on to make the love songs of oedipus rex which is a 27 person piece which is afro punk meets or afro pop mixed with punk is a better way to say it mixed with gospel and hardcore and soul i don't know what the hell it is and then we did grief which was an all-night choral performance in 2020 and now we've just done and the lord has taken away which is a 45 person orchestra talk and there's about... like lots of little tiny things yeah yeah talk about this latest project tell me a little bit about it yes I, over the course of about five years a lot of people around me died and it really just seemed to continue to happen like everybody close to me just seemed to be dying and from all sorts of different reasons and causes okay that was a painful series of years and i really looked for quite a while to find my experiences of mourning complex concurrent deaths in media and i was having a hard time finding it until i landed on the book of job and uh, I saw my experiences in the Job character, and I started using it as a access point to to explore themes of suffering and grief and the quest for meaning. And I don't know why it became a large orchestral piece. It wasn't intentional. It just one instrument asked for another instrument, and another instrument asked for another instrument until the sound became a very large orchestral theatrical one and that's what in the lord has taken away is it's a 65 minute investigation of how to build meaning in the face of misfortune had you always it was had you gone to biblical text before for influence you talked about how influence is a weird kind of strange thing is this one of the first times and why do you think the book of job spoke to you I hadn't looked to biblical texts for inspiration before, but I had certainly used ancient texts. The The album before in the Lord Have Taken Away is called The Love Songs of Oedipus Rex, in which I use the Oedipus uh, mm -hmm. myth as a way to access and understand the divorce that I was going through at the time of composing that record. So I'm accustomed to using broader archetypal texts in order to comprehend myself and see myself in relation to broader historical narratives. I find that kind of comforting. It's mesmerizing. You're to look deeply at something like chapter three of the book of Job, in which the character falls to his knees and curses the day of his birth. And you reflect on the fact that we don't know exactly when the book of Job was written, but it's probably somewhere between 25 and 3,500 years old. And a lot of those depictions of angst and anguish and suffering don't read as novel in the book of Job. They read familiar to somebody alive in 2023, which means that humans have been suffering for several thousands of years and the certain flavor of our suffering seems to be something that characterizes our species or at least our species with regards to its involvement in civilizations but nonetheless there's something very interesting and, and even comforting about knowing that i'm suffering just the same as somebody did three thousand years ago and they got through it job Although it's a rather perverse and sordid text, it does have a very happy ending. And that happy ending, or let's call it a happy resolution, because ending has this sense of finality to it. We all go through these periods of, we all have our seasons in hell, so to speak. And those of us who go through those seasons of hell and come out on the other side of it tend to do so with newfound strengths, skills, awarenesses, and wisdoms. And there's something to be said about our growth as characters as a result of having gone through intense struggles and 
having gone through intense struggles seems to be one of the primary ingredients to finding meaning. Yeah. Did, was the recording, the writing and recording cathartic? No. The writing and recording of the love songs of Oedipus Rex was deeply cathartic. Okay. But, and the Lord hath taken away, first of all, it took much longer to write the album. In fact, some of the songs were written concurrently with the love songs of Oedipus Rex. And in fact, the albums really ought to be consumed as a diptych. They do tell the same story. I wouldn't describe it as cathartic because while process, so the love songs of Oedipus Rex is about me mourning the death of my father, my therapist while going through a divorce and the Lord have taken away deals far more with the death of my father and my psychotherapist, but also looks at the suicide of my best friend and uh, some other mental health and addiction problems I have in my family. I had to really meditate on those things quite a bit. During the writing of the love songs of Oedipus Rex, I was very heartbroken, which was a state of meaning because love took on an incredible amount of meaning for me. To suffer the loss of love and to feel that heartbreak implies a belief in love and meaningfully enough so to feel pain for it. But after that album was over, I fell into a very deep depression. And when my friend hanged himself, that depression worsened. So the quest for meaning took several years. And catharsis is an emotional release, but I was in such a depression that emotions were not available to me. I was living in a void of, of meaninglessness. Sure. So that's why I would describe it as a non-cathartic experience, what it was a characterologically revolutionary one. I rebirthed myself as something quite different and something quite similar to the Jobian figure at the end of his story. I feel that I am twice as strong, that I've been gifted twice as much as what I originally lost. And catharsis is an important feature, but I think it's overemphasized in our culture, mainly because it has a visceral feeling and it feels good. We all want to release things. So we jump at the opportunity for catharsis, but not all catharsis are... Um, integratable into our lives. It's not always the case that just because we had an emotional release that we're characterologically changed and that we can take what was learned from that catharsis and integrate it into the person we're striving to be or the person we have become without without knowing we have become it. So catharsis are great, but they're not all they're cracked up to be. And sometimes closure isn't there right? That life is somewhere where you don't get closure and you don't get. I'm curious, Bruce Springsteen's next to last album, he his latest album was a collection of cover songs, which was absolutely a lot of fun. But the song album before that was called Letter to You. And he tells the story that he had been called to the side of one of his high school friends, a guy named George Thies, who is dying of lung cancer. And George was the leader of Bruce's first band, the Castiles. And they said their goodbyes. And, and Bruce realized that after George had passed, that he was the only person who was in that band was still alive. He was the last man standing. And that led to this collection of songs, not all, but many of them about facing mortality and and seeing the end. And he ends the album with I'll See You in My Dreams. And the road is long and seeming without end. The days go on. I remember you, my friend. And though you're gone and my heart's been emptied, it seems, I'll see you in my dreams. My recommendation is you might want to check out Bruce's album. I think it it is very powerful for someone at this stage of his career to doing an album. And there's the mythos, mythology that he and the E Street Band got together for like over four days and recorded the album. That's not quite true. It's true, but they did spend a lot of time working on the album together. I'll check on that. 
Right. The when, yeah. When do you guys get to perform this live? That's a lot of instruments. Uh, when some rich old lady makes a big investment. Okay. <laughs> Slowly putting the funds together to get it off the ground. Okay. But I'm I'm about two thirds at my target number. And okay. uh, any of your listeners want to make an investment in an honest to goodness independent orchestra, they should contact the Holy Gasp on social media or at www.theholygasp.com. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit. Where can they find your music? Let's talk about some music that you want to share. Yeah, you can find the Holy Gasp's music literally everywhere. Online music is sold and streamed. I would prefer that people listen to it on Bandcamp or bought our vinyls because that's a great way for the most amount of money to go to independent artists. And uh, a lot of these corporate streamers are really taking very bad advantage of independent artists and not paying the royalties that they should. So I don't wish to support them. But uh, if you wish to support them, you can. And our music is available on those digital streaming platforms. It it really is, as we're recording this, the the Writers Guild and the Actors Guild here in the U.S. are on strike are. for a lot of these reasons yeah. that I saw a writer post that he made more money off one rerun on a network channel than he's made that one episode than he has made like on seven years of streaming on Amazon Prime, Netflix, whatever you want. It just, and so there is that, and we've got, I'm going to sound like the grumpy old man, but people have gotten spoiled. They're like, oh, I can just go to name your streaming service and sample that music. And what should happen is they go, oh, I really like this. Let me buy it. But they go, oh, no, I don't need to buy it. I can just keep streaming it. It's even worse for the lyricist. Yeah. Because the authorship and the composition royalties, are the, although they're distinguished on paper, they're, they're collected in one lump sum. A website posts my lyrics I don't get I don't get any royalties, even though you can probably find my lyrics just as a result of participating in a digital history sure. everywhere. Whereas once upon a time, if you wanted to get the lyrics, you either bought the chart or you bought the album and read it in the liner notes. Yeah. Uh, it's a bum deal for lyricists. Absolutely. What's next for you, Benjamin? I don't know. I haven't thought that far. Okay. I'm writing, I'm, I'm humming, I'm making tunes. And we're playing every other Thursday. We do our meaningful encounters, which are these sort of guerrilla group therapy sessions where we live score your lives and try and develop meaning. Tell uh, me a little more about that. Yeah, the events are called Be Me with the Holy Gasp. Me is a acronym for meaningful encounter. And uh, people show up. We hand them microphones. We ask them pointed questions about what's meaningful in their lives or what's causing suffering. We strive to fabricate meaning for the subjective individual for one moment. And different musicians playing different instruments accompany me at every event. And we have performers dressed as specters of death who loom around the audience to remind them of the imminence of death and encourage them to live their lives fuller and with less fear. Where did that idea come from? From my wild, creative mind, Jesse. Okay. That's a that's an answer. <laughs> Do how long you've been doing this? We're on our second season. We go from May to October in my favorite my favorite venue in Toronto called Paminar, Cafe Paminar. We're there every other Thursday. Mm-hmm. 8 o'clock p.m. I don't know how many Toronto listeners you've got on your podcast, but uh, that's okay. Maybe, maybe one day we'll come to Dallas and do a meeting. Yeah, at your place. Do what's the response? It sounds like it's a pretty positive response with people. Oh, the response is really black and white. People either love it or they hate it. If they hate it, they know they hate it within a minute, and they get up and leave. And the thought of ask, being asked pointed questions terrifies them, or they find it very uncomfortable for people to share their 
life stories in a public setting. But the people who love it are pretty devoted. We have, I would say, 50% of the audience is uh, irregulars who come back every time. So it's become a bit of a community. And yeah, they're nice. It's really nice to see people be vulnerable and to strive to speak about themselves in the present without edifice and to permit themselves to be ugly or awkward or embarrassed. And I'm interested. I'm interested in this experience of feeling awkward. Somehow we've allowed awkwardness to become a reason not to do things, but almost everything we've never done before is awkward until we've done it and then it becomes comfortable. So it stands to reason that awkwardness is the passage point between nothingness and somethingness. One of the things that I was talking to my family about, and they're both more athletic than I am, and they were talking about that running or doing something. I'm like, yeah, when it stop, when it hurts, I stop. <laughs> and they said, you've never gotten comfortable being uncomfortable, have you? And I went, no, that's really well said. And I've turned that not just to athletics, but often in my day gig, I, I run a call center and I will, you will, you try to make your, help your team become more productive. And sometimes they have to be uncomfortable comfortable being uncomfortable, right? Trying to do something a little different it doesn't feel right. It's uncomfortable. But ultimately, when you adjust to this new area, it could be good. And this sounds like you're a group session, a a, a in the round, a, a hoot nanny, as they say in South, part hoot nanny, part group session, and part jam session. Yep. And part, did you ever see Billy Jack? Yeah. Yeah. Remember those guerrilla theater troops that they had in Billy Jack? Yeah. It's like that too. <laughs> That's awesome. That's really great. That's good. So what should I have asked you that I haven't, Benjamin? Meaning of life, my favorite color, whether yes. or not there's any truth in astrology, why Thunder Road has so much glockenspiel on it. A lot, of, <laughs> a lot of glockenspiel. A lot of glockenspiel. I did not notice that. Yeah, it's like uh, for the entire song there's glockenspiel. So maybe that's maybe Bruce spent time in elementary school like you did, like really love the glockenspiel. I would like to think that he did. Yeah, I think in our mind canon, that is exactly what happened, right? That is what Bruce was loving that, and then that led to him being a rock and roll musician. You hear that, kids? Glockenspiel leads to bigger and better things. It leads to rock and roll. There we go. Absolutely. Gosh, this is interesting. All right. I'm going to include the link to the website. From there, we can find Bandcamp and order some of your vinyl. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, you said this is in Toronto You're mm -hmm. every other Thursday? That's right. At Cafe Paminar at 307 Augusta Avenue in Kensington Market. Nice. That sounds good. What time? 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Yeah, good. Very nice. Final thoughts before I get to the Mary question. No. This was a blast. This was such a, I had a great time. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. This was wonderful. I'm so happy to hear that. Thank you. If you are a fan of Benjamin and his music, I hope you, and you're checking out this podcast. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I end every podcast with the Mary question. Jay Armstrong, who was an honors English teacher in the Philadelphia area, he's now retired. But when he was teaching, he would give his students the lyrics to Thunder Road. They would read them. They would talk about the imagery Bruce used. They would talk about comparing it to other poems, like from Robert Frost. And they would ask the question, does Mary get in the car? So, Benjamin, that is your question. Does Mary get in the car at Thunder, Thunder Road? Definitely not. All right. For a number of reasons. One, there's no way he would have written the song if she got in the car. We write songs about 
conundrums and conflicts in our lives in attempts to comprehend them. When you write a song about a person who doesn't get in the car, you go over the, the context of asking her to get in the car. I think from a purely logical level, I don't think she got in the car. But also, as I look closely at the lyric, I don't think it's, I don't think, first of all, it's important whether or not she gets in the car. And I don't think that, I don't think where they're going is what's significant. I think it's the awareness that they could be somewhere else is what matters. And I don't really get the impression that she's real either. I get the impression that this is a scenario he's concocted for himself or he's imagined what it might be like if he were to drive up to the house and ask her to do this with him. He doesn't need her to get in the car. He doesn't even need her to come out onto the porch. He just needs to know that he has it within him to ask and he has another place that he could go. Excellent answer. By the way, I'm I'm on a spell where two or three people have had the same theory of you. Um, a wonderful writer named Warren Zanes, who uh, just recently put out a book on uh, Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. And he said, close to you, he said it, and I can't remember the name, so I'll just use Mary Alice. He said, I never asked Mary Alice in reality, but in my mind, I asked Mary Alice out hundreds of times in high school. Yeah. And he said, that's what Mary is in this song. It is the image of what he wishes he could ask, but he never is going to. And, and I, I, I love that answer. He doesn't see her as a beauty. He says, you're not a beauty. Yeah. Don't you think, like, even in his own fantasy, he can't imagine. Don't you think you'd imagine the greatest beauty of all? If you were going to grab a gal and leave town and drive wherever the hell you wanted and to become angel-like and float away to heaven. Wouldn't you want to go with a beauty? So tell her she's not a beauty. That is why my wife says, hell no, she doesn't get in the car. She says, you called me ugly. Get out of here. I like to believe that because I'm a romantic, that he has heard Mary say multiple times that she's not attractive, that no one would like her, that she and she's talked bad about herself all the time. And so he is doing the acknowledging her objections and then countermanding it. Hey, you ain't a beauty, but hey, you're all right. You are worthy. Now, that's, I think that, I do think Julie Roberts has supposedly said that's a good description of her. She ain't a beauty, but hey, she's all right, <laughs> which I think is amazing. Yeah, I, about 50% say she gets in, about 50% say she doesn't. I'm a romantic. I said she gets in. I, I think she gets in because Thunder Road is the very first song on the album Born to Run, and they continue to have the adventures. Do I think they have a happy marriage? I don't know. I don't know if she stays on. I don't know if they make it. I don't know about that. But I think, yes, that they find a way that they need each other. They fill those gaps and there is a need there. That's what I believe. Mm. But it makes for a wonderful way to end the podcast because I always get great discussions from people that whether it's a yes or a no, or a I'm not sure always mm. ends up being a fun conversation. Mm. Yes. Yeah. I think your interpretation of the beauty remark is quite nice but i don't i wouldn't summarize it as so romantic i would summarize it as just realistic like maybe you're not a beauty and that doesn't mean she's ugly right maybe yeah. you're not a queen maybe you're not like the sort of person who's going to be able to coast on her looks for the next yeah. 30 years but you're still all right yeah i like the way you put that it's nice thanks all right everyone i'm going to include the link to the website in the show notes go check it out if you're toronto go Hang out. That sounds like a lot of fun. And Benjamin, this was a blast. You are welcome anytime. Anything you. you've got to promote, let me know. Thank and you. I just appreciate it so much. And yes, if I'm in Toronto, I will make sure I hang out. And if you guys get down to Dallas, let me know so I can promote the heck out of it. 
Excellent. Thank you so much. All right. They are on all social media. Definitely check out The Holy Gasp at The Holy Gasp on Twitter.com for the website. I appreciate you so much. Listeners, thank you for listening. I appreciate you so much. Be kind, be safe, and remember that if we open up our hearts, love won't forsake us. Just let the music take us and carry us home. Thank you, Benjamin. Thank you, listeners. We'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, said Listening Bruce. The theme for Set Lessing Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.